This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. We're joined on the show now by Callum Lawrenson, computer engineer, electrical engineer out of Monash University, who in 2018 started his own company, Endpoint Fencing. Incredible situation where you've got a sport that is born out of the Italian Renaissance, and now with the latest technology, Callum's leading the way globally. An incredible Australian startup story. Cal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucky. Great to be here. Mate, can you, we want to sort of establish, because, I mean, fencing is one of the oldest, grandest sports of them all. And, I mean, I sort of, in preparation for doing the interview, I thought, you know, because obviously, well, you know, watch it at the Olympics every time, and, you, you know, it's such a, a beautiful sport to watch. Um, so I did a little bit of research, but, I, I mean, I, I need you to sort of uh, help me out a bit with it and for, for our listeners. So from what I can see, obviously, you know, um, battling with swords, of course, one of the ancient parts of um, civilization, and then sort of through the Renaissance, um, the sort of the modern incarnation of fencing started from what I can see. And then in the 1700s, uh, a bloke by the name of uh, Domenico Angelo, I believe an Italian man who started Angelo's school in London. And uh, that was sort of the, the, the sort of the forebearer of where fencing is today. It's one of the original Olympic sports in 1896 that made its debut in Athens. Of course, the bloke that runs the Olympics now, Thomas Buck, won gold in fencing back in 1976. Uh, so it is a magnificent sport, and you've been able to bring the latest technology to it. Um, you're dominating globally now. So can you give us all a bit of a, a an idea more into what fencing is, and then we'll talk about your career in fencing and as an electrical engineer as well? Yeah, sure, no worries. So... um. Fencing is, uh, it's a combination of, I suppose, three different disciplines. There are three different weapons within fencing. There's foil, sabre, and epee. Mm. Now, when I fenced, I was fencing sabre. Uh, but the most common uh, weapon in Australia and even worldwide is epee. And it's probably the best one to start with because it's the easiest to understand. It's effectively, it's a relatively heavy, stiff weapon. Um, the whole body is target. And there's no rules of priority so other fencing weapons they have rules about when you can hit if two people hit at the same time then uh only one of them gets the point and that's decided by the referee but epe is totally different epe is just the person who hits gets a point and if both people hit within the timeout time which is 40 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds it's very fast if yeah. both people hit within that time then both people get a point so it's very easy to understand. It's nice to watch because there's a lot of movement in and out and uh, it usually takes a relatively long time, uh, which fences from the other disciplines don't like so much. Uh, <laughs> but I, I actually love it. I think it's uh, one, of, one of the best because you can see people start to set up actions and so on. Um, foil is looks a little bit like Epe, but with a little bit of a smaller guard, but the target area is only the torso. And Sabre is just totally different. It's um, You are allowed to hit with any part of the Sabre weapon. Foil and Epe, you're only allowed to hit with a point, uh, and you'll only score a, a, a light. So to give you a bit of a picture of what uh, it looks like watching a fencing bout, you have a big scoring machine yeah. in, the, in the center of the bout, in the center of the piece, and as the fencers fence, one fencer will hit, 
a lot on their side will come up and they'll celebrate typically. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, with Sabre, because you can hit with any part of the weapon, uh, it's very, very fast. People will start on the on guard line. That's the starting point that people use. The referee will call Alay and they will rush at each other very quickly. Uh, that's because you can hit with any part of the weapon. So effectively, you can't be too close. Um, the closer you get, the easier it is to hit. So both people are trying to get as close as possible, as quickly as possible. And because of the way priority rules work, both people are trying to show the referee that they've attacked first, which yeah. means extending their arm a full way out, trying to lunge as early as possible, and so on. So usually a saber point will be over within three or four seconds. Oh. Um Foil, you have to hit with, with the point and on the torso, which means you can be too close. The closer you get, the more you have to angle your arm in order to hit on the close target. Yeah. So it's a little bit more conservative than Sabre. They're not tending to rush into each other as much. And in uh, Epe, it's even, uh, the distance is even further and the timing's even slower. God. But it's that difference between the three weapons that makes them all quite interesting. But if you're looking at starting to watch fencing, I definitely recommend starting with Epe because that's the one that uh, is easiest to understand. And uh, yeah, it's the... yeah, Epe will do me definitely. And and mate, so you know, one of the things of watching it at the Olympics, like particularly more as a kid, was all the wires and everything everywhere. And you sort of think, how ironic, because they they do have sharp weapons. And like you know, and, and so like, can you tell us about how difficult the sport was with the when it was wired? And also a bit of a background about how long the electrical component has been in fencing, because I think it will surprise people that it wasn't long after electricity sort of became, uh, well, really somewhat mainstream, that it was all brought into to fencing as a sport with regards to scoring. Um, and the way that you've been able to now create a wireless situation, which is revolutionising the sport. Yeah, so with EPE, they originally started doing electrical scoring as early as the 1800s, um, the first scoring system was built, although it wasn't used in the sport. Yeah. Uh, they first used it in sporting competition context in the 1920s. So it's very early, pre-transistors. The, the circuit was basically a, a motor attached to a bell and a um, and a cable that ran power through the button on the end of an epe. And the bell would go off when you would hit the guard of the opponent fencer. So you'd be able to tell the difference between the guard and the body. Just one of those things that's really hard to do as a referee or even as a fencer, right? You, you can't tell. It's The guard can be, you can hit it very quickly and you might think you've hit the body, but yeah, but not necessarily. So yeah. yeah and um, so from then on, after that, I think it was the 1950s that they first brought in wide scoring for foil. And I believe that Sabre was done in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, so there's been a long history of continuous development of objective scoring and fencing that I think mainly is driven by the fact fencing is not a power-based sport. There's not, you, you don't set your legs and uh, deliver power with your hips or anything like that, like you do in a lot of other like related sports like boxing. It's a lot easier to see the movement happen. Uh, in fencing, because you can hit as lightly as you like, uh, with, within reason, <laughs> um, within the tolerance of the electrical system these days at least, um, uh, it means it's very difficult for a referee to see an action happen. It happens very, very fast. I mean, the fastest hits that happen in Sabre are down around 0.2 of a millisecond. 
sure. those are hits that bounce off the top of somebody's mask. They it, it can be incredibly quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so it's one of those things that uh, if you if you're in a noisy environment, so say in a quiet environment, if you flick a blade off somebody's mask, you can probably hear it right. But in a noisy environment, in a stadium, you're never going to be able to hear that. And the only way you can do that really is with electronic scoring. But this was one of the major challenges that we faced. So if you think about trying to design a system to integrate with technology that's 100 years old, um, you have a lot of limitations that are built into the way that the equipment was originally designed, right? <laughs> you can't just go out there and go, we're going to design an entirely new system with entirely new equipment and have every fencer in the world. They're going to buy uh, new types of jackets, new blades, new wires. I mean... Yeah. Uh, as a manufacturer, you would probably love that, but in terms of practicality of getting it implemented, it was not going to happen. So, yeah, we, sorry, to go back to, to wires. So uh, I think it was in the 90s, maybe around 1996, that the first wireless system came out. It wasn't ours. It was by STM, mm. Ukrainian company. Uh, and that was designed specifically to run large events like the Olympics. Uh, and they kind of showed that it was possible to do. Uh, they had obviously teething problems initially, but eventually they got reasonably good and uh, it really improved the spectacle. I mean, when you watch an old fencing bout with the wires behind, a lot of the time fences are moving up and down and forwards and backwards. And you can hear these wires slapping on the piece behind them. Yeah. Occasionally the springs inside the reels, they can break or lose tension and then the, the box either gets dragged along behind the fencer as they're moving forwards and they get slowed down by it or or even it stops reeling in and they move backwards and the wire lies on the floor you can trip over it all sorts of things all sorts of things can happen in competitions when you have cables around everywhere right when things go wrong so cumbersome yeah 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 and the other thing is uh they can break right you've got a wire it's being reeled up and unreeled constantly a thousand times mm -hmm. eventually there's going to be some little thing that breaks and if it breaks at the wrong moment then it can affect the outcome of a bout yeah. so it's a little bit frustrating um and, and my understanding is that so you with your your fencing your own career and then also working as a as an engineer at your fencing competitions whereby you'd be there perennially having to fix all the wires can you tell us about that experience or just how bloody difficult it was and how much that inspired you to try and come up with this solution that you have found yeah so that was the initial uh driving force behind <laughs> trying to develop a, a wireless scoring system that could be used at all levels of fencing, you know, down to club level and also up to international level. Yeah. The goal really was I was spending every week, every two weeks, I was having to repair these cables. My club was a university club. We had these, they're called overhead reels. And effectively the cable uh, comes, imagine like a clothesline. It comes mm. over the top of the place where the fences are uh, fencing. And if people... Uh, running backwards very quickly and they fall over, they can fall off the back of the piece. And if they do that, the wire gets the whole weight of the fence are put on it and it breaks. Okay. So uh, that would happen relatively regularly. And as it goes on, as you, uh, as the wire gets older, um, you repair it enough times, it gets shorter and shorter and people get more and more restricted and it breaks more often. And then you have to buy a new wire and it's just a, it was a never ending cycle. So I thought, well, I'm an engineer. I know how to do radio stuff. 
how hard can it be, right? It seemed like, well, we have wireless keyboards, we have wireless phones. I'm just going to put a Bluetooth chip into someone's pocket. I'll measure this touch and that'll be it. Hmm. Uh, and then I tried to draw up the circuit and I realized you're trying to detect touch between two people who are not connected to each other in any way. They don't have, there's no circuit, right? So I was trying to draw this and then I realized, oh yeah, you can't do it. There's no, <laughs> it's not possible. And then uh, I thought about it some more and I realized uh, actually it is possible. There are electric field paths that you can create between those fences and you can measure those, but it's really, really hard. Um, there's a lot of you know <laughs> confounding factors. Things can get really messed up when you're talking about really small signals. Yeah. Um, and that was probably, I started working on it, I think in 2012. Wow. Uh, it wasn't full-time. It yeah. was one of those projects that was just sort of ongoing and I was still at uni. Yeah. I started working on a PhD and I was still working on it in the background. And then um, uh, Tony, one of my colleagues came on board. He started working on it. And um, Rachel, one of my other colleagues came on board. She started working on it with us and by 2018, we had something that resembled a product. It was the right time. Uh, the There were a few competitors starting to to try and release the things. We weren't sure how good they would be, but we'd been working on it for long enough that we thought, well, we can't uh, we can't push any further. This is it. This is this is the time. So we went ahead, run a production run, and and that's it. You know, that's that's how we ended up in the market. On point fencing was born. Cal, can you describe for us the process whereby, yeah, as you said, initially you thought, ah, oh, this will be easy. Then you thought, no, this is going to be impossible. And then can you tell us how you were able to conceptualize that you could create an electrical field between those two opponents? And to the extent that you, you know, I don't, I don't want to give away too much of the secret sauce, but like, how were you able to do that? And can you even just take us inside the creative process whereby, you know, is it you at 2am at night with a big whiteboard in front of you sort of drawing it all out? Or how, tell us about sort of the, the process of how you're able to breathe this to life, because it's amazing what you've done. Take us inside the uh, the workshop of how you did it, please. Well, when I first started working on it, I was doing it as part of a final year project with the university. Right. And um, I had this idea of generating just wasn't really thinking about it in terms of electric fields i was just thinking i'm generate a a signal on look taking fa for example generating a signal on the guard of the fa um and trying to measure that signal with the tip of the other fa and had some pretty good success with that uh but the the problem is if you are taking that approach is that fences they may start out dry and civilized, but after they've been fencing for two hours, they're wet. They're very sweaty. And I bet. if you put a signal on a guard, it can conduct through the sweat and eventually your whole body ends up with that signal on it. So the system worked. This was the, the system, the original system that we designed, that I designed, I should say. It, um, it worked initially, but towards the end of about, it was useless. And uh, when I tried to use it for foil or for saber, it, it just didn't work at all. Mm. Uh, and that was when kind of tried to reevaluate what was happening, you know, drawing a lot of, we had a whiteboard set up in the office, Tony and I, and we would draw pictures of what we thought was happening and then rub them out. And we had this uh, rapid development cycle, you know, so we'd, we were using a whole lot of, uh, 
modern um, electronics chips that can you can really rapidly redesign the analog front end. So we, they were called PSOCs, what we were originally developing on. We don't use them anymore, but they were very useful to have a really, you don't have to redesign uh, a PCB, you don't have to reassemble it and stuff. You can change the front end hardware relatively quickly, try something new. I was fencing every day. Um, so I would go into the office, we would do a redesign. I would take this new design out to fencing and see when it would fail what it looked like when it would fail and just rinse and repeat we went through a large large number of prototypes and uh there were a few brainwave moments oh, that's what's happening that's now i understand why this looks this way and this looks that way and you know uh, <laughs> but uh eventually um we ended up with something in our testing that we thought was pretty good um and the international governing body at that time, I think that was about 2014, they uh, were looking for a, a company to design wireless scoring system. And we thought, oh, why don't we go? We'll talk to them. We'll see. Uh, we'll show them what we can do. Yeah. At that stage, I should say, we had a conductive T-shirt that we would wear. So underneath all of the other fencing equipment, there was a conductive T-shirt. You connect your system up to that. I see just basically means you've got this really, really good connection to the body of the fencer, which allows you to distinguish between the body and other things, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have a good connection to the body, it's a lot harder to do. Yeah. And um, yeah, we we spoke to them for a little while, but they were really interested in something that was a little bit more modern. Uh, they already had the STM system, which had been used at Olympics in the past, and they weren't really interested in something that was similar to that. STM also used the conductive shirts, they had a, a relatively similar approach to us at that time. So we thought, surely there's a way, surely it's possible to do it a little bit better. If we can do it with the shirt, we can do it without the shirt, right? And that was another few years of development, uh, trying to figure out, we're, we're talking the amount of, of charge that you can transfer across that electric field is femtocoulombs, very, very small amount of charge. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have um either you, you have to have very high voltages trying to create a bit more of a charge transfer through or you need to have small voltages you try and do as much as possible you get as much data through and um that's uh you know it's basically where right from the beginning we were saying we really don't want there to be a calibration process this is a thing that that other um people who've attempted while scoring and implemented while scoring have done is they've they've said oh okay uh it's really hard to set everything correctly from the beginning so what we're going to do is get you to do some tests get you to do some procedure we'll take some measurements we'll know how sweaty the fences are we'll know how bad the weapons are remembering as well people are using 20 year old equipment sometimes they're wearing these conductive jackets that have big green patches on them that don't conduct and so on you want it to fail reliably right so People uh, were trying to use calibration to do this, but Tony and I, we have a uh, ideological opposition to calibration <laughs> because we think it's too easy to make it break, right? If you tell someone to do a procedure uh, and you're relying on them doing that procedure in exactly the right way in order for you to set all of your thresholds, then it's not going to work properly mm. um, because 
you know, someone's going to lean on a wall, a concrete wall, or someone's going to hold their blade weirdly or do something weird because, oh, it's, I'm only just testing it. I'm just setting it up. It's not, it doesn't matter. So we, we wanted to make something that was completely impervious to changes in equipment quality, to changes in sweat level of fences and so on. So that was a large part of why the development took so long. We And I think we really ended up with something that if we'd, if we'd started out looking at the problem of how do I detect one person touching another person, I don't think we would have come to the same uh, <laughs> conclusion. But because we started out with how do we use this equipment that was designed 50 plus years ago and detect touches between fences, uh, I think that's that's how we ended up where we were. It's been quite a, a, a slow and... Uh, uh, there's been a lot of iterations in the process and we've had a lot of different designs, but uh, pretty happy with where we've ended up. And uh, if we were starting again, I, I could do it even better. That's what, that's Mate, what it's just yeah. incredible. And I appreciate so much you giving us an insight into that, the the scientific, the creative process behind it. Yeah, because you watch movies like recently, Oppenheimer and, and in you know, a couple of years ago, The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch and and you see these sort of creative processes, scientific processes where teams of people are working on something, working, 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 trying to make something come to fruition. So it's just fascinating that, you know, a journey you started in essentially 2012. In 2014, you go to the world's governing body, you've got the solution, but they want something next gen and you don't give up. You say, all right, okay, sure. And, and I love your attitude. Surely it's possible. I love the fact that your starting position is not, ah, it's too hard. Your starting position is surely it's possible. And then you work up from there. And then by 2018 to have on point with the, the premium product. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and mate, so you're at where you're at now. How have you been able to get out to market? I mean, I noticed that you've got, you know, you're selling your product. Well, I mean, you ship worldwide, but also, you know, you've got uh, setups in Japan, United Kingdom, the USA, um, the leading retailers in fencing across the globe are stocking your product because it is the premium one. Like, have you been able to get out to market in the way that you have? And, and where do you see yourself growing to next in the world of fencing? Well, look, I think that there was a really strong demand for this type of product. There had been wireless systems before, but there hadn't been any that were really possible to use in a club environment that were really reliable. So all of that hard work that we did <laughs> all of those years developing without selling the product, in the end, I think they gave us a real competitive edge. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, we didn't do that much marketing uh, because we were um, basically operating at capacity right from the start. We started out literally putting together uh, PCBs, assembling circuits by hand oh. um, in a spare room. And I had I recruited my parents. I had them with tweezers, placing electronic components onto boards. We had a little reflow oven um, for about three months for the first run. And then we were able, after the first run, because we we're entirely self-funded, uh, after the first run, uh, we had enough revenue coming in that we were able to afford proper uh, manufacturing equipment. It was really important to us that we kept the manufacturing in-house uh, because it's actually, especially at that time, the quality control problem was really difficult uh, when we were outsourcing stuff. We have thousands of components 
um, you need to really check every component beforehand. And if you're a large established company, it's possible to outsource that kind of stuff. Uh, but as a small startup, you don't have the market leverage, you don't have the contacts. And we just thought, you know, we, we want to do it ourselves. We want to assemble them all in Australia. And we've stuck with that. So we still, everything is made here locally in Melbourne. Um, yeah, it's the, uh, the, the, so I suppose that was the, the, the key point, the starting point mm -hmm. where we, I guess, had to get the product out there. We, we also had a, a bit of support. One of our um, customers in the USA had seen our product at a demonstration and thought, this is great. I want this for my club. And he made a big pre-order. He oh, pre-ordered 30 systems, which helped us start off the first run as well. Yeah. And like I said, there was there was just a strong demand in the environment for, for that kind of product. And there wasn't really, there wasn't a three-weapon alternative system out there. So there were there were some systems that did one weapon or sometimes two, but usually they were really designed for practice. They weren't designed for, for serious competition. And they were um they weren't suitable for clubs that had all three weapons in any case. So Congratulations. Like, I mean, do you, just on a personal note, do you ever have a chance in the middle of your day where you're flat out, but do you ever get a chance, maybe you set, stop at a set of traffic lights or something and actually just reflect on that you've made it happen? You know what I mean? Like from a, from a kid at uni who, who's, you know, studied, I mean, you did commerce initially at Monash and then obviously you went and did the engineering course, electrical engineering, computer systems, PhD, etc. Um, do you ever get a chance to look back and go, gee, I actually pulled it off. We've done it. Tony, Rach, the whole team, we've done it, you know? Well, uh, I should clarify that uh, I actually did my pre-submission seminar for the PhD and got approved and then uh, never wrote the thesis because uh, <laughs> I had to strike on the business while the iron was hot. Well, you've done a PhD in global fencing. Don't worry about the one at the uni. You've done it in global fencing. Yeah, if anyone out there wants to give me an honorary one, that'd be great. But uh... Yeah, you, you don't need one else. You've got the Olympics. Speak <laughs> to Thomas um... Bond. But, yeah. but, mate, yeah, do you ever get a chance to reflect and go, you know what, we pulled it off. We did it. Yeah, look, um, I, I, I guess I'm not really one for looking back. I'm one for looking forward. And I really just see a lot of things that that are uh, still to be done. I think there's a lot of, I think we have a very good starting point with this technology. We we have a patent on the fundamental uh, technology behind this this uh, field based touch sensing between multiple people. I think that there's a lot of potential for it to expand within fencing and also in other sports. I I so <laughs> I don't really sit back and look at look at what we've done. I go look at what we could do with this technology you know well, look at what could be done that's <laughs> i love it i love it the words of a high achiever and it's it's um, guided you well through life clearly because you've done a, a lot mate what um what do you want to do next in fencing what's next and beyond fencing uh, you mentioned sports like boxing what else can be done by on point yeah well we have a few fencing projects lined up i mean there's it's always the way, you know, if you if you look at the products, our first product that we designed, um, we, we kind of simultaneously designed a pocket box and a relay box, pocket box going in the pocket, relay box connecting up to a scoring machine uh -huh. and um, and and allowing people to effectively just replace the wired part of their system, but keep the same lights, keep the same interface, everything that they really liked. Uh, but we didn't have a lot of experience as product designers at that point, right? Um, and we also didn't have 
brand recognition at that time. So there are a few things that I'd really like to do. I, I'd really like to um, get rid of more wires. <laughs> There's still wires in fencing. You know, we've got rid of the big wire that comes back to the scoring machine, but but uh, there's still body wires, there's wires in the weapons themselves to get to the buttons and so on. It's long-term, it, it may be ambitious, but I'd like to slowly work away at, at those things. And um, yeah, and yeah there's, there's other things like, for example, at international competitions, you require mask lights. Uh, the, the mask lights up when people make the hit, mm-hmm. makes it easier for the audience to understand what's going on and so on. But um, so that's one of the things that we'd really like to do as well. Um, even things just like uh, bigger, better scoring machines, more brighter lights and repeater lights and so on, getting that that sort of glitzy competition feel happening, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, all, all these things planning in the background. And we, we've had a, a few, well, obviously COVID hit a few years ago um, and there was a big chip shortage worldwide, which made it very challenging for small manufacturers like us we were at that time using the the um, just in time manufacturing method we would order stuff in just as we needed it we put it together but obviously when you have a worldwide shortage of electronic components uh that's not a good strategy so we had to do a whole lot of redesign work at that time and uh, i mean i don't know how much you know about um manufacturing of products but there's a whole lot of compliance uh stuff that goes into a product as well as a whole lot like testing for noise immunity and for electro electromagnetic compatibility and so on so we had to outsource this stuff because we don't have the equipment to measure it and we were sending these to labs in a few different places in the world trying to get certified with new designs that we've made for chips that are available temporarily by however many of those we can get. And then they go out of stock and we have to do another redesign and do another round of testing and so on. So we had a very tumultuous couple of years while that lasted. And thankfully we've come out of that. Um, But it's also given us a good opportunity to re-examine the designs of those things. And we go, you know, if we were to start again, we could do a redesign. We could do things a lot better. We could make them easy to manufacture, more reliable long-term and so on. So that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then on, on the other um, on the other side of stuff outside of fencing, really, I can really see a lot of potential for this kind of touch detection in uh, a lot of different sports. I mean, as a company, we're primarily focused on selling to clubs and individuals, and we're mainly dealing with the officiation problem, effectively, right? Um which is a really important problem in sports like fencing. Um, Most sports tech companies are not really focused on the officiation problem at all. They're mainly focused on giving data to people who are watching the sport, which is great for sports that have a lot of viewers. (laughs) It's not necessarily very good for fencing, which has some viewership at the Olympics, but at other other times it kind of drops off a lot, right? Uh, So I would really like to be involved in some of those sports where um, where there's there's a higher viewership and where there's a bit of potential to collect. You know, we have all of this extra data anyway. It would be great to be able to use that to supply it to people, give people more entertainment value. And, um, and yeah, there are a lot of sports that have direct touch involved. Even, for example, uh, the AFL. Last year, there were these... Uh, uh, the, was the ball touched before it went through the goals or wasn't? This 
this kind of stuff. Um, and similarly, uh, sports like uh, like touch rugby, for example, is uh, you have a, a referee who's trying to tell whether two uh, players touched each other. It's very difficult. That's the officiation side of the problem. That's what we know. And you can start there and then move from there and say, you know, how long was that touch for or exactly what time was it? You can capture the exact moment of the touch and then have a, you know, 360 camera zoom around. Let's look at the touch from all the angles and so on, that, that kind of stuff, which is not really possible with any other technology. So, yeah. And uh, we're, we're also, you know, we're, we've investigated. Um, I, I'm very keen to get into some of the large Indian sports um, like Kabaddi. Yes, I was going to say Kabaddi, yes. It's a touch sport. It's and, and it's very difficult for the referee to to officiate. So again, officiation problem, but also a sport with a large viewership. So that there's potential to expand in other ways. Yeah, so. that's such a cool sport, Cal. Like I remember, I I was in India, very lucky to be there in 2018, actually around the big year for you guys at on point. But um, and it was when Kabaddi had just sort of started to get out again, like because it's an ancient sport, obviously, and it sort of had a revival. And like on the beach, Juhu Beach, there were nearly as many Kabaddi games going on as cricket games, like pick up cricket games. And it was just amazing. It was so good to see. But um, so you reckon like, obviously, you know, you got a big sport there um, that would absolutely work with your tech. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of the things when you look at our tech in fencing, you go, oh, well, there's a metal blade and a metal jacket. There's a metal blade hitting a metal jacket. That's how they're telling it, right? Um, but that's really an oversimplification. So we've done tests that uh, where we've been able to tell when two fingers touch each other. Yeah. So you have two people standing completely separately. You could do that and it'll register. I mean, wow. that's, you, you, one hand rapidly touches another hand. And we can we can detect that it effectively because we're we're not actually using electrical uh, direct electrical conductivity, mm. we're using a, a process of whatever is conducting the field path best, and that's the body, right? You can quite easily uh, detect touch between two people, and uh, similarly between a, a person and object, like for example a ball. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like with the Kabaddi one, and just to give people an idea, like there's no ball involved. It's just on a, on a court, on a playing uh, arena whereby players are, they have their zone and they got to keep the other players out of their zone and, and vice versa. It's sort of, in a sense, you could say, it's not a great comparison, but it's almost like rugby, but without a ball, but that's not necessarily the ideal comparison. I encourage people to have a look on YouTube. It is such a cool sport. But like with that one, would, because obviously there's not, you know, a foil or a sabre, et cetera, would they have to wear something? Would they have a wearable, like a shirt, for example, or whatever, to, to be able to create that? Or how does that work? Yeah, that that's right. So you'd you'd have you have to have the electronics on you somewhere. Yeah. Um, and realistically, you'd have the, the electronics themselves are very small, but the body itself and the clothing of the person they form part of the sensor. Okay. So, um, depending on the sport, for a sport like kabaddi, yeah, you'd probably have something. On, in in the back of the shirt or in the waistband or somewhere similar. I get you. And um, yeah, very interesting. And what and boxing, of course, huge sport. Uh, you know, what do you reckon chances for that as well, Cal? Yeah, look, I think we we've always had we've had discussions about boxing in the past. I w there's a bit of um, 
contention within the uh, within the founders of OnPoint here because uh, we've always been a bit concerned about CTE. Um, yeah. So there was we weren't a hundred percent sure that we wanted to go into the boxing space for that reason. Mm. Um, but I've recently heard of a couple of people doing a lower contact form of boxing and avoiding head contact. And and I think at some point there's probably going to be uh, a decision that says we really need to do something about the long-term risks of sports like this. And I think that's something that we could really help with. So because we're able to detect the exact timing of the touch, because we're able to um, denote different target zones and so on, I think there is real potential. Um, it's one of those things that seems like it would be a lot easier than it is. Um, <laughs> and, uh, because of our background in this, in this stuff, we know all of the challenges that are associated with it. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's actually a very similar sport to fencing in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's one of those things that we think, you know, this is something, this is something that I'd, I'd like to be involved in. If it's something that we can do to make simultaneous, like I, I love boxing, yeah. um, but I, you know, I, I concede that there are problems with um, with concussion. So if there's a way that we can do something with boxing and simultaneously help with the concussion problem, that would be something we'd be really enthusiastic about. So. Bloody hell. Mate, Cal, i got to thank you so much for your time. I mean, you've got one of the great Australian sports tech stories. The, the, the way that you've been able to, you know, over the course of really 12 years where you start the journey out you're a gun engineer you're someone that loves the sport of fencing you see a problem and you create the solution and you've gone again and again with different iterations to make it the most cutting edge technology possible so to you and the whole team to tony to rach and everyone there at on point congratulations on all you've achieved i think you're a great australian story on the world stage i appreciate your time and i think i speak on behalf of all the listeners Thanks so much for really, you know, giving us a look under the hood of the way you went about it. Like, it's so cool to hear that sort of the creative, the scientist's journey, creating something out of nothing. Um, very, very cool. So congratulations. And, and, mate, we'll have to have you back on the show. But uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Lucky. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at astn.com.au.